are keeping democracy alive. Bert Cohen here. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And women, of course. That was recorded a long time ago. ISIS. Pretty bad stuff, but boy, are we getting it wrong. ISIS is correctly recognized as extremely dangerous, and yet current American policy is not only failing to roll them back, there is actually a remarkably positive option, which so far is not even being considered by us. Of course, the people of the region must be saved from the brutality of ISIS, and military attacks are an essential component. But as our guest today, Meredith Meredith Tax notes, the appeal of ISIS and Al-Qaeda has to be countered ideologically, not just militarily, no matter what our candidate uh, Hillary Clinton seems to think, as she said recently in the debate, this cannot happen. We cannot compete uh, and and put a, a a compelling alternative together without uh, saying it. They are, it has to be shown to be remarkably powerful, this compelling alternative. Of course, I know that one of the many confusing sides in the Iraq-Syria-Turkey struggles is the Kurds, who as yet, well, at least currently, have no state of their own. It hasn't always been like that. Before reading Meredith Tax's eye-opening article on the subject and her book, I had not been aware of, and I know I'm not going to pronounce it right, Rojava, Rojava. Uh, they, but they were key to the liberating of the Yazidis, which you may have heard of, in that besieged mountaintop town back in 2015. Of course, it's all very confusing. We Americans could easily turn away and just continue down the dangerous and often counterproductive path we've been going down in the fight against ISIS and continue to pay a very high price and continue to have ISIS effectively recruit more people, more fighters. As with so many examples in history, we can continue down what author Barbara Tuchman called the March of Folly, in her great book of that title, or consider another better option, which so far we have chosen to ignore. In addition to her recent article, which appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, and Open Democracy, her new book on the topic is called a Road Unforeseen, uh, Women Fight the Islamic State. The book recounts the dramatic, underreported history of the Rojava Kurds, whose all-women militia, all-women militia, was instrumental in that perilous mountaintop rescue of tens of thousands of civilians besieged. 
Up to that point, it looked like ISIS was invincible. They're virtually unknown, or they were by me anyway, in war-torn Syria, a uh, democratic society exists based on secularism, ethnic inclusiveness, and gender equality. And they have won significant victories against the Islamic State, ISIS, or Daesh, with women on the front lines as fierce warriors and leaders. Who are these revolutionary women of Rojava? Is it possible that a significant amount of world politics of the 20th century may be shaped by the opposition among uh, these political models, Iraqi Kurdistan, the Islamic State, and Turkey. What about the Rojava model? Well, I'm very pleased to have with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Meredith Tax. Thank you so much for being with us. Glad to be here, Bert. Meredith Tax is a writer and political activist, author most recently of Double Bind, The Muslim Right, The Anglo-American Left, and Universal Human Rights. She was founding president of Women's World, a global free speech network of feminist writers and co-founder of Penn American, Centr- American Center's Women's Committee and the International Penn Women's Writers Committee. She's currently international board chair of the Center for S- Secular Space. Again, it's a very tangled mess. Thank you for helping us cut through it. T- tell us, please, if this is correct, Meredith. Turkey is one of America's key allies in the fight against ISIS or Daesh. Yet, uh, right. uh, on August 24th, Turkey invaded uh, Jarabalus, a Syrian border town, as you say, with great fanfare. You say the whole thing was a fake. It was a made-for-TV battle that actually benefited ISIS and effectively stopped the Kurds from destroying ISIS. In what way was it fake? And is this incident revealing of what's going on in general? Well, first of all, Turkey has always been... Uh, an ally of the U.S. against ISIS in name, uh, not in deed. And this has been constantly uh, a subject of some dispute between the United States and and the Turkish government, because uh, even during the Battle of Kobani, Turkey has been more worried about the Kurds and its own Kurds and the Kurds in Syria than about ISIS. And in fact, Erzegan, the Turkish president, has said many times that he doesn't see anything to choose between the two. They're both uh, terrorist organizations, and he'd just as soon have ISIS as as the Kurds on his border. Mm -hmm. So he has never been willing to fight them, and that has become slightly less true since they started bombing inside Turkey. But even so, most of their targets inside Turkey have been Kurdish demonstrations of people who are opposed to him. So I think that this has always been an ambiguity. Um, and and the Kurds and other people have been researching this for a long time, and there have been constant rumors about Turkey giving various kinds of aid to ISIS in the Turkish press, particularly over the last two right. years, for instance. Um, there was a whole operation to, I mean, a, a big, or, an organized effort to get wounded ISIS fighters private medical care in, in Turkish hospitals. And nobody was supposed to know about this. The whistle was blown by a nurse uh, a couple of years ago who said, you know, she was just disgusted by the whole thing and would the government please look into it. Turkey has been openly, more or less, using... I mean, allowing ISIS to recruit inside its cities. There are several cities that um, that are more or less open 
open season for recruiting for jihadis where they have their own mosques, they have their own uh, coffee houses, and everybody knows if you want to join ISIS, you go to this coffee Mm. house, and if you want to join al-Nusra, which is the al-Qaeda branch, you go to the other one. Mm. And this has been exposed even in the Turkish um, parliament, but nothing again was done. So the, the key thing that Turkey has always been determined to avoid is to have the Syrian Kurds have a contiguous presence along its border. I mean, you, it's hard hard to explain unless you can visualize the map. Um, the Turkish border, on the Turkish side, the Turkish border with Syria is in its uh, southeast, and that's a largely Kurdish area. Mm-hmm. And the Kurdish area in Syria is uh, just across that border. And that's where um, they've set up these uh, Rojava, which is began in 2012 as three, it looked like three little blobs on the map, hmm. three little yellow blobs. It was on my map surrounded by a vast field of gray and then up against the Turkish border, and the gray was ISIS. And gradually, as a result of their successful battles against ISIS, they managed to close the gap between the two eastern cantons, Caesarea and Kobani. But there's still another canton, which is all their people off to the left, Afrin. And in between Afrin and Kobani, there's still a sort of big, snaky thing Hmm. of gray, which has been controlled of ISIS. And that's the area in which Turkey is determined not to let Kurds take over, even, you know, even at the the price of having uh, ISIS there. But finally, it became clear to Turkey and everybody else that the Kurds were going to go in there and that they had U.S. support. Mm-hmm. And even though they, Turkey kept trying to delay it, so finally they announced that they were going to go in there themselves and they were going to battle for Jerobolus. This was a few weeks ago. And you probably saw things about the Battle of Jerobos. Yes. But if you look at the actual footage, um, there wasn't any fighting. I mean, there's all this big procession of tanks and trucks and warriors on top of flatbed trucks waving banners and all this stuff. But there wasn't any fighting. There were shots that were uh, explosions in the distance, Mm. which could have been taken at any time. And it turns out they limited... Uh, the whole press corps to one hill, and ISIS wasn't in the town by the time Turkey came in. They had left uh, to go somewhere else, and this enabled Turkey to move in its own, not only its own army, but it's the Turkey supports certain militias in what is called the Free Syrian Army, uh-huh. mm-hmm. which is also supported by the CIA. Yes. And some of these militias are also supported by Oman or Qatar or Saudi Arabia or whatever. But um, Turkey supports uh, a particular bunch of them, and some of the most violent and sectarian ones, including El Nusra, which has now changed its name, but I'm going to use its old name because that's what people are familiar with. And El Nusra is the branch of Al-Qaeda in Syria. So those are the people that Turkey moved into this buffer area that they're trying to keep the Kurds from taking over. 
And I'm going to st- stop for breath here. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot to it, and is is very confusing. And and one thing I have learned in looking at the Middle East, oh, for in that region in particular, uh, the history of it since the First World War, borders are entirely flexible, very mercurial, I would say. You know, it used to be one very large Ottoman Empire. Then that fell apart, and that uh, it was very, very different back then. There were just uh, different uh, tribal regions that stuck together, moved around more or less. And for us in the West to see these as, you know, actual borders, they, I, my guess is it, it's different there. Uh, well, they were drawn with a ruler by the British and, and French yes. at, the t- at the end of World War One, mm-hmm. in the Sykes-Picot Treaty, which is the treaty everybody is con- continually denouncing. Yes. Um, and they don't have any relationship to anything really except what the British and French were willing to trade off with each other, who got which city, who got what oil, because yeah. they had already discovered oil there. Yeah, and that, that Sykes-Picot line, boo hiss, you know, it was arbitrary. As you say, it was drawn by a ruler. And I, yeah. I, I, I met a, a person in Spain, actually, a long time ago, who said when he was in elementary school, he was uh, being shown a map of Africa and said, why are there such straight lines? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like in Nebraska. <laughs> yeah. It's just, just so arbitrary. And, and, uh, right, and and what happened to the Kurds in yes, the middle of exactly. all this is after various false promises from the British, mostly, um, that they would get their own country, they wound up being divided between Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey, and unable to have, you know, any kind of common uh, anything, really. Yeah. And Except, uh, some of them kept going back and forth, and they have relatives on other sides. And so. Uh, yeah, it's... I, one can only try to imagine. The book is A Road Unforeseen. Women Fight the Islamic State. Our guest is Meredith Tax. Very interesting, to, I think largely unknown in the West uh, story. Now, why, you know, we here in the West could understand why other countries, other powers might want to fight ISIS. But why? Why is the, Why are the Kurds the bigger enemy than ISIS of the Turkish regime? Tell us. Well, there are two reasons. Um, the first reason is they always have been just like the Armenians were, because when uh-huh. Turkey was set up uh, after World War One, the notion of nationalism that prevailed, and which is still common in many countries. Um, mm. Fortunately, less so here than in many countries in Europe, say. But the, the notion of nationalism was that everybody should be the same. Everybody had to have the same national identity, and that was that they were Sunni and that they spoke Turkish, and uh, th- they just all, you know, basically were Turks. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't have any other identity. Mm-hmm. So there were no hyphenated identities that were possible. And minority groups, whether they were minority religions, you know, like the Alevis or... Um, Christians or Jews, or whether they were minority peoples with different languages and customs, were very ruthlessly suppressed. Um, the Kurds were, I mean, they, they, they came very close to exterminating the Armenians, yes. which they still deny that they no, did. Oh, I know. Um, in, in the Armenian genocide of World War I. But the Kurds have been subjected to the same kind of thing for, like, ever since World War I, you know, continually 
um, having their villages burned out, forced relocations. They were not permitted to speak Kurdish or learn Kurdish or do anything in Kurdish, like have, you know, their spring festival. All those things were seen as subversive and attacks on the state. So you might be speaking Kurdish in your house, Mm. go out in the street and speak Kurdish, you can get arrested. Mm. That's, that was until fairly recently. I mean, and the educational system was very discriminatory against Kurds. It was it was meant as as you know, sort of like what the U.S. and Canada did with Native Americans. It was meant as a mode of assimilating them to the dominant culture. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that there were not very many schools to begin with in the Kurdish area of Turkey, and the ones there were were. Um, all in all in Turkish. Nobody was allowed to speak uh-huh, Kurdish. Sure. And the kids didn't know Turkish. They spoke Kurdish at home. They would get to you know, so it was yeah. a, they would be forced to assimilate and learn this other language rather than have any kind of education in their own language. And, and about and there's still a lot of prejudice of this kind and a huge amount of racism toward Kurds inside Turkey. So that's the first reason. Hmm. Second reason, I mean, is they're discriminated against minority and have been since forever. Uh-huh. Um, the second reason is uh, they have an alternative model, uh-huh. and they have uh-huh. a liberation struggle that has been going on since the 70s and has gotten quite violent at times, led by a party called the PKK, the Kurdistan yes. Workers' Party. Yes. And the people in Rojava are closely allied to the PKK. Many of them were in the PKK until they came. They're Syrians, but they were, a lot of Syrians were in the PKK during the period when it was impossible to do anything in Syria. So, um, so they are seen as part of this insurrectionary force mm-hmm. that has an alternative social model that is trying to you know, oppose the centralized government of Turkey mm-hmm. and have more local autonomy and more, basically, democracy. And things that you know ah, can't have that. <laughs> things that are that seem like totally normal in bush league here are like crimes there. Mm. Like the ma- the mayor of a city in Turkey called Sir, yes. uh, a guy named Abdul- Abdullah Demirbis, uh, got put on on trial and put in jail because he um, printed leaflets about the monuments in his city for for um, tourists in different languages, including Armenian, because there were Armenian tourists who came there because there was a big church. Mm-hmm. And he was put in jail for that. I mean, that's the kind of thing that goes on. Boy, as uh, <laughs> Rocky said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. You know, and, <laughs> <laughs> just, you well, know, it doesn't. You know, it, it just doesn't. provokes no, of resistance. Course of course. Oh my goodness gracious! But it's but you know they keep and the the thing about Turkey is they don't seem well. You know, I guess this is true of a lot of places. They don't seem to learn from experience. No, they keep doing the same thing over and over and think it's going to work. Yeah, yeah. The definition of insanity. How many mm. how many Kurds are there? Do you think? I mean, obviously, uh, the Turkish government and other governments, I guess, have tried to wipe them out, but uh, what, what is the Kurdish population? Any guess, Meredith? I can't remember. I'm very bad at numbers. It's about, in Turkey, it's about 20% of the population, so wow. it's a lot of people, yeah. millions of people. In Syria, not so many. It's about 10%. And uh, Iraq, I don't know, and Iran, I don't think anybody knows. No. Um, 
But it's it's not insignificant. It's a lot of people. Oh no, it's a lot of people, and there's also a huge Kurdish diaspora, but it's yes. mostly in Europe. See, the, huh. one of the, in Europe, they're much more hip to this than we are here because there are a lot of Kurds, especially concentrated in Germany, because so many. Germany used to have this guest worker program where people would go sure. from Turkey, and many of them stayed. And it was in a place where Kurds would go to escape persecution as well. And, and there are quite a few in England and France and so on. But here they, um, I think there probably are a fair number of Kurds here, that a lot of people who say they're from Turkey or Syria or something uh-huh. are Kurdish, but they haven't yet claimed that as an identity. I know Kurds in New York who are just starting to study Kurdish because they were never allowed to. They're just starting to study their own history because they were never allowed to in Turkey. I'm convinced there will be at least a Kurdistan at some point. There will be uh, Palestine, I imagine, too. It's, it's going to happen. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's not what they're trying to do now in Rojava. I mean, they have a... See, mostly what people here know about is the Iraqi Kurds who were so terribly persecuted by Saddam that the U.S. eventually had to uh, set up a no-fly zone, and eventually they got their own sort of autonomous territory within Iraq, which they and they're now they are their leader or one of their leaders, and that that place is really a mess. Um, Masoud Barzani is pushing for a referendum to declare independence, which the U.S. is not happy about, and neither is Iraq. Mm-hmm. So they they're going for a traditional nation state uh-huh, in Iraq very much like which would because they're still pretty tribal and incredibly corrupt and very um very top down uh, and it'll end up looking I like see. Kyrgyzstan or one of those kinds of, one of the stands an uh-huh. oil rich um authoritarian uh. patriarchal tribal scene with some you know gloss of some a few big cities with fancy hotels um, and oil. And oil. Well, Rojava yeah. is, is different. Rojava doesn't have very much oil. They have a little in Chisery. Uh-huh. But, um, and they also, one of their, their commitments is to sustainability. I mean, their politics are very, very much um, formed on an awareness of global warming and uh-huh. a, a connection to the earth and a desire to... Um, to have an economy that is not oil-dependent, but is productive and works for its people. Because oil is really a curse to a lot of the people in the Middle East. I mean, it just has enabled this insane level of wealth and control by a, a small elite, while most people have nothing, and they don't even have any industry or agriculture. Hmm. Interesting, interesting, interesting. And people have wondered about, I don't want to get too far, of course, but Iran wants uh, nuclear for electricity. And, you know, the oil hasn't been doing it. A lot of people uh, don't understand that. So yeah. j- just, uh, I, I definitely want to get to Rojava. It's so interesting. But before that, you know, allegedly Turkey is our ally fighting against ISIS. What's the reality? <laughs> what's the reality to that? What's, what's Turkey's the reality? The reality is they haven't done anything against ISIS. Hmm. And, um, and they've let ISIS function with impunity within their borders, and they have been the main transit point for ISIS to um, bring foreign fighters in. And they go in and out very freely, and there have been plenty of interviews with people who are 
you know, say they're in ISIS or who left ISIS, who, who talk about this and how they've been facilitated by the Turkish military or the Turkish military intelligence. And um, they've also allowed ISIS to use some of their territory as a staging point against Rojava. And there are also lots of rumors about Erdogan's family, which, you know, yes. I can't prove, right. and, and no, nobody's exactly been able to prove it, but there's a lot of stuff that looks pretty fishy yeah. uh, in terms of corruption and in terms of oil, particularly yes. Yes. his son, mm-hmm. who is uh, under investigation in Italy for corruption and was in charge of the oil industry. And one of the main ways ISIS gets money is by selling oil um, that Absolutely. it gets from Mosul um, in Iraq, Iraq through Iraqi Kurdistan to Turkey. And, um, and you know, this is fairly well known. So our buddies, yeah, and I was just going to say, our buddies, the Turks, are allegedly, uh, wink, wink, nod, nod, fighting ISIS, meanwhile uh, enabling them to make a lot of money. And right. I, was, I mean, I don't think I don't think that I mean, this is the government and it's military intelligence. It doesn't mean that most people in Turkey like ISIS, right. but they just don't have anything to say about it. And there's also a huge uh, amount of censorship. The first big story uh, that came out about this was in 2014. And uh, it was about military trucks under the protection of military intelligence being used to transport weapons, heavy weapons, to ISIS. Or maybe it was to al-Nusra. It was to some group of jihadis across the border. And, you know, everybody who was involved in in the story, or even just policemen who were there, were either fired or put in jail. There was a big censorship order. It was The Internet was closed. I mean, this is stuff that the government really does not want to come out. Mm. And did that have something to do with in November 2015 when Turkey shot down a Russian fighter jet? Well, it was quite a, a mysterious thing. Why did? Uh, what is their motivation for doing that? Was it related to the oil? Uh, uh? Well, the Russians say it was. I mean, they have never said. The Russians say that uh, the planes were disrupting the, the shipment of oil. The U.S. had been bombing uh, some of the oil transport facilities and some actually places where they kept their cash and the Russians too and that they didn't want oversight they didn't want people flying over that but nobody really knows they have never acknowledged why they did it I mean they said it was a mistake that's all. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to doubt that well yeah y- your book a road unforeseen women fight the Islamic State fascinating it shares many stories of the women of Rojava. I, I want to focus on that. For example, in the summer of 2014, if I got this right, ISIS seemed invincible as the vaunted Iraqi Kurdish militia, uh, no, the I guess it was the Iraqi militia, the Peshmerga, fled yeah, before the, them. The Peshmerga are Iraqi. Yes, they are Iraqi. They, um, they, they fled before ISIS. Uh, you know, they just gave up. You write that Rojava may well be the best place in the Middle East to be a woman. Who are they, and why do we not know about them? Well, those are two separate questions, so let's yes. take them one at a time. Sure. Um, who they are are socialist or anarchist or partic- participatory Democrats or whatever you want to call them. Sounds good. Um, people 
with a political ideology that is secularist, though not anti-religion, that is pluralist, which means they think everybody should get along and everybody should have representation in government, and government should not be nation-states that are founded on identity the way um, the Turkish one was, as I was saying, but should be accepting of all their citizens and be able to tolerate a considerable degree of difference among their citizens. And most importantly to me, there are people who think that women are key, are central in any revolution of the 21st century, because I agree with that. Yes. And uh, and I have never seen a revolutionary movement before that was trying to put that into practice. I've seen plenty who talked the talk, but nobody who walked the walk in, after at least the first liberation struggle. I mean, a lot of them were happy to have women uh, in their militias until they got into power, and then the women were sent home or were given jobs, you know, mm-hmm. taking care of hospitals while mm-hmm. the men got the jobs that made all the money and had all the power. And um, this is the story of many anti-colonial revolutions and of other kind of revolutions as well. So, you know, it it's easy to sort of give up. And then you see these people who nobody even heard of, as you said, here, you know, here in the great, you know, cosmopolis. Um, and they're doing something that's extraordinarily uh, feminist considering that they started as a Marxist-Leninist party in the 70s, and they have completely changed their politics. And their leader, who's a guy named Abdullah Uchlan, has written, uh, basically, that women are the new proletariat. Women are the the leading force in any revolution in the Middle East. And you have to say that... Um, the victory, the fact that the Kurds, that these Kurds who believe this, who believe in bottom-up democracy, mm. who believe in pluralism, who have feminist leadership in many, many locations in their society, the fact that they are the only people who were able to defeat ISIS yes. does say something. I mean, maybe what it's saying, I mean, nobody seems to understand what it's saying, but what I think it's saying is, if you have a society that people really care about, that they want to fight to defend and they want to fight to bring other people the kind of freedom that they have, and you have a society that enlists not just 50% of its people, but all of its people in this enthusiasm, you've got a very strong force. Hmm. Wow, I've seen a lot of wars like that where one side, you know, isn't particularly motivated I think of uh, Vietnam, the American-created government, alleged government of South Vietnam, and the other side, they were very motivated. And guess who won? You know, they were right. And and I remember, I'm, I'm as old as you are, so I remember the coverage of that time too, and the way the press. They never really talked about what it was like in North Vietnam or why people were. Talk- I mean, it was always the coverage was almost always purely military. And at yes. least what I used to see, and what I except on the left, and what I um, if it wasn't military, it was about South Vietnam, and that's the way the coverage of the Syrian war has been, and the the coverage of Turkey. It's like there, nobody is looking at what's happening on the ground or how important it is or why people are fighting in this way. 
Interesting, yeah. And I remember uh, in, in Vietnam there was a Madame Bin who was a leader of the uh, National... I remember, too. Yeah, she was led the Paris priest negotiation. Oh, wow. I'd forgotten that. Well, it, it, you know, there is history of which we can learn. We never seem to do that. But, you know, being, being motivated is a significant uh, factor. So I'm guessing from what you're saying, the second question, why do we in the U.S. not know about this, is because we get these pictures, that very neat cookie-cutter pictures that are laid down on things, and, and this is not that. It doesn't fit. It that. doesn't fit. It doesn't <laughs> fit. First of all, there is no room. I mean, since the fall of the Berlin Wall... There has been no room, at least until Bernie came along, yes. for even uttering the word socialism, mm-hmm. let alone talking about an actual socialist movement that exists, let alone talking about a socialist movement that is also feminist, or and maybe it is anarchist. I mean, I don't even know what the word is. They use the term democratic yes. federalism ah. for, the, for the, uh, the kind of model they use of, they don't even call it government, they call it self-administration. Hmm. And it's very bottoms up. It, you know, it starts with the little building blocks on the level of the the neighborhood, and then they go on to the village or the city, and it goes all the way up. And it's all direct democracy elected, and uh, 40% of all all everything, all civil society organizations, all self-administration organizations, all businesses, everything, 40% at least have to be women. And everything is led by co-chairs. There's no one great leader at, at any level. It's all one woman and one man. And they also are trying very hard for ethnic inclusivity so that it's not all Kurds running this stuff, even though Kurds are the majority in their area. So it's it's a very different model from any of the kind of top-down statist models in the rest of the Middle East or most of the world. Yeah. And I think people just don't know how to talk about it. And it's also very difficult for reporters to get in there uh, because yeah. the Iraqi Kurds control... I mean, you can't get in through Turkey at all. Turkey has closed the border. They've put all of Rojava under an economic siege for years and years. So they can't get medical supplies, they can't get food, they can't get building supplies to rebuild the houses that were destroyed by ISIS, anything. The only place that is even open for a trickle is in Iraqi Kurdistan, which controls the the one border point into Rojava. And they don't let very much through either because they are allied politically and economically with Turkey, even though they're Kurds. And so it's been increasingly difficult to get reporters in there it was easier a couple of years ago. Now people are getting turned away at the border all the time. Mm. And one of the images that, that we in the West have gotten is that the, the, the ISIS, the more, shall we say, traditional uh, forms of, of Islam are very male-dominated, extremely male-dominated. In fact, you know, the idea of educating girls is said to be kind of revolutionary, and there have been attempts by Western uh, non-governmental organizations to help uh, educate girls, and largely, I don't, it's met with mixed success at best because it's coming from the outside, but you're talking about something here, and no wonder <laughs> the the male-dominated ISIS and, and, and the uh, Turkish government and the other governments are afraid Oh my goodness! Powerful women. I'm reminded of that old expression: oh. "Sisterhood is powerful." 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, they're terrified. And, I mean, let's also remember that although Turkey is in NATO yes. and is uh, allegedly a democratic government, although less and less all the time, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it, the party that runs it is an Islamist party close to the, Isla, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, Erdogan's party, and he's seized more and more power to the point where many people now would consider him a dictator. I mean, he yes. put half of the army in jail. He put fired one-third of all the teachers in the country so kids can't go to school. I mean, all, you know, in this paranoid thing he has against his rival uh, inside Turkish pow- uh, power politics, who is his ex-ally. I don't even want to get into that. Gulen, yeah. the guy who lives in Pennsylvania. Right. But uh, it, it, Turkey is getting very scary. And a lot of people are, those who can, are leaving. People are out of jobs. Hundreds and thousands have been thrown in jail. And he's always been doing that to the Kurds, but now he's doing it to other people as well. Mm. Yeah, he... So, you know, so to any Islamist government, the thought that women are equal to men and equally capable is, it's anathema. Um, just as it would be to any other kind of fundamentalist in the Bible Belt or in Meisharim or anyplace else. Because um, they're all going by these ancient, ancient texts that, you know, that they interpret in the most reactionary possible way on top of it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very threatening. I mean, ISIS is very... The, the ISIS warriors think that if they get killed by a woman... They won't be able to go to uh, heaven and get, you know, all these 47 or 72 or whatever it is, Huri's taking care of them who are their mistresses and being able to eat whatever they want and everything. <laughs> you know, they won't, go, they won't ascend to paradise if they're killed by a woman. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, not going to have a lot of sympathy for them. So how, how have they fought in battles, these uh, 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 women, uh, and, and, and how, you know, maybe you have some examples of how successful they have been against uh, ISIS, uh, the, the Rojava women. Well, the, there, there are two militias. One is the YPJ, which is the People's Protection Unit, and one is the YPG, which is the Women's Protection Unit. Both have women in them. The Women's Protection Units are only women. And the others are mixed, and they elect their commanders, and in some of the mixed units, there are women commanders. I don't know the details of all the battles sure. enough to know, uh, you know, that that kind of information doesn't get out in English very much. Hmm. But I do know that, um, that it's part of the ideology of the movement uh, that women be able to fight and defend themselves, that they not be passive that they not be uh, considered, you know, needing the protection of others, but that they be able to be examples of strength. And that's why they have their own units, so that they are able... I mean, these are, these are people who come from the very traditional rural society, yeah. Sunni Muslim for the most part, not that different from any place else in the Middle East. So they have, have to have a model of how to remake themselves into what they call free women. Hmm. And... Uh, the model that they have chosen is that of a woman gorilla who uh, is celibate, who lives with... Uh, they're all celibate, all the gorillas. They don't form family attachments. Wow. They are completely into the struggle and to the point where some people think it sounds culty. I mean, to me, it sounds also like a way to get away from your family um, because, you know, and, and avoid 
getting married at 16 and have mm. some kind of free life. Mm. So it, it, but, it's largely a, a, a Muslim world. The Kurds, correct me if I'm wrong, are also Muslim. Is yeah, the, mostly. But the, the Rojava, are they secularists or are they consider themselves Muslim? They're both. I both. mean, the, 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 ah. the society is secular in that there is no state religion. But they don't stop people from being observant. Ah, uh-huh. so, and, you know, there are other minority religions, too, like the Yazidis, who they're, you know, nobody's stopping them from being religious, although they're certainly not encouraging them to make their life all centered around religion. And they keep religion out of the political sphere. And, and yeah, that that's fascinating, of course, and powerful women. I don't know. It just I can imagine the other side uh, giving up because they don't want to be shot by a woman. That's, that's some pretty powerful. <laughs> well, they hasn't quite given up yet, but uh... no, they haven't quite given up. Well, why is it? I mean, how how have the U.S. and the U.K. so far dealt with uh, these these powerful women, the, the Rojava? They're not part of the peace talks. Why why is this? I mean, is it that the great powers themselves are afraid of this? Why why are they not part of the peace process? It sounds like they could be very well. Helpful. It's mostly pressure from Turkey, but it's also pressure from the Syrian opposition. Um, and, and England and the U.S. are not on the same page about this. England is actually worse uh, about the uh, Rojava than, uh, than the U.S. because they are, I don't know why, they have a conservative government. Um, and uh, they have been very, um, very, made some really nasty statements about them all being terrorists and so on, very much like those of Turkey. Hmm. And But the Syrian opposition is unwilling to deal with Rojava. They don't want them at the table either. They still have a unitary state idea as their goal, and they are afraid of the idea of federalism, which the Kurds are proposing, a sort of local option, that there be people be allowed to decide for themselves what kind of local government they want, and that the state be mostly in charge of dealing with other states. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a very different model of a state, than any in the Middle East or, in, indeed, anywhere else, although it's, there's some similarities to India and a couple of other places. Interesting. It sounds very attractive to me, the idea of, you know, actual, uh, you know, democracy. Oh, my goodness gracious. I mean, this show is called Keeping Democracy Alive, certainly barely hanging by a thread in this country, but but real democracy. It is, and it's really interesting, however, to, to remember that the U.S. was formed as a federation of states, Absolutely. not as a centralized state. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, way back when. And we still have, a, I mean, compared to a lot of countries, we have quite a bit of local option. Yeah, yeah, we do. And uh, a lot of places still like that. We, a lot of people still like the idea and the practice of, of democracy. And you mentioned, you know, that, that they come from... Uh, uh, socialist uh, past. What about? I mean, there is an international left, and I remember you probably remember too, Meredith, in the uh, late '60s with regard to the SDS. Women's roles were largely to get coffee and serve the men. Uh, <laughs> I certainly do remember. <laughs> I was one of the people who did all the mimeographing. Oh my goodness! Uh, but well, what about the the international left? Are they? Connecting. I mean, haven't they moved away from the old, uh, uh, you know, formula? Uh, are they 
they connected? Well, I mean, first of all, it's hard to find the international left. I mean, what yeah, is the true. international well, left? What is the left here? I mean, who are you going to say is in it? Yeah, really. I mean, is it all these little, you know, leftover Marxist parties of some kind or other? Or that's is it social irrelevant. movements yeah. or what? That's, that's a good and thing. So that's the first thing. And the other is that there has... The, the international left on the whole, overall, at least in Europe and the United States, has a problem with dealing with Islamism and a problem with a sort of focus. Uh, there are parts of it, anyway, who have focused on the U.S. as the only source of evil in the world yeah. to the point of craziness. Yes. Um, so that they stop seeing what's really happening in the world, and they end up doing things like saying, well, if Assad or Ahmadinejad are against the U.S., then they're anti-imperialists, so they must be good. Right. Or if Al-Qaeda, I mean, the Spartacist League, actually, oh, which is the farthest out of the craziest probably we've got, yes. um, has endorsed ISIS. What? Because oh, they're fighting God. the U.S. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe, Whoa. but it's, it's true. And yeah. uh, so you get this this kind of inability to deal with life in the 21st century and still going on Cold War models uh, a lot in the left. And it's been a big problem with Syria of parts of the left really not being at all willing to criticize Russia or Assad's mm-hmm. conduct in uh, hmm. in Syria, which is appalling. I mean, they're committing war crimes of the most horrible magnitude. Yeah, yeah, they are. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, believe me. And our guest today is uh, Meredith Tax, author of the new book, A Road Unforeseen, Women Fight the Islamic State. And they're having a lot of success with that. And we're talking about kind of a, a new paradigm, a new model that threatens states in general. And I have to ask about, uh, I had not heard of, and I may pronounce this wrong, Abdullah Oshalan? I had Oshalan. Oshalan. Who is he, and and what do he and his followers want, and what what's his relation? He's not a woman, obviously, with uh, Rojava. Uh, Abdullah Ojlan is uh, one of the founders and the leader of the Kurdistan Workers Party, the PKK, PKK. Okay. in Turkey, and he is in jail. He has been in jail since two thousand. He was captured with the help of the CIA by Turkey after a very long and complicated flight from Europe where he had taken refuge. But let's go back a little farther to the 70s when the PKK was founded. And if you remember the 70s, there were lots of anti-colonial movements with a mm-hmm. sort of people's war right. Africa. Uh, philosophy, that is, that they would locate themselves in the countryside, that the students would go to the countryside and integrate with the people, and that they would form guerrilla units, and they would take on the state, and eventually they would uh, liberate their people and form their own nation. And that was the philosophy of the Kurdistan Workers' Party when it started. And it was started by students. Ochlan was a student, although he was from a very poor peasant background, very, very poor. And uh, and from the countryside, and also you know had suffered the same kind of discrimination that other Kurds did, and um, so they started this little study group, and then they eventually went to the countryside and uh, formed a party and started going around and proselytizing and enlisting volunteers, and then they started doing sort of propaganda of the deed 
actions, which brought, uh-huh. well, they weren't the only thing, because there was a lot of other unrest in the country as well, but there was a military coup in 1980. And Everybody who could had to leave, the, who, who was alive and wasn't in jail, left the country. And Uchulan at that point went to Damascus in Syria, where he stayed until 1999. And he and his fellows, who, who came and joined him there, some women and some men, um, sought military training from anybody who would give it to them, who were mostly the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And they ended up being able to establish military bases in the mountains of Iraqi Kurdistan, even though their relationship with uh, the Barzani party in particular mm. in Iraqi Kurdistan has never been very good. They're, they have opposed political ideologies and methods. But so they still have bases around the mountains there, um, the, the the Turkish... PKK has bases mm-hmm. in the Iraqi mountains. So, by the way, does a little um, similar group from Iran of Iranian Kurds. And uh, and the Syrian Kurds were there, too. So they were, I mean, they were all Kurds. Yeah. And they had similar kinds of military training. And um, so- in the 90s, uh, up until the 90s, you could say all of this was a fairly typical... Marxist, Leninist, guerrilla, you know, people's war type movement. In the 90s, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and Soviet Union. disintegration of the Soviet Union and so on, people all over started re-examining that model who had followed it. Uh-huh. And they certainly re-examined it in the PKK, and they also realized that they were not getting very far in terms of a purely military strategy, that a military strategy was not enough. Right. And at the same time that this happened, there started being massive sort of popular civil uprisings and a, a political party. And, this, you know, there were other people who were active as Kurdish nationalists or Kurdish civil rights people and human rights people in the cities, especially because as the Kurds had been driven out of their <clears throat> villages by the Turks burning their villages down. Mm. A lot of them went into the cities and became sort of a uh, in. permanently semi-employed mm-hmm. urban proletariat. And uh, anyway, so there three things started happening at the same time in the middle 90s. The, um, the PKK started realizing it needed a more flexible strategy. Civil resistance began in a lot of the cities. Uh, and... Um, a p- political party developed, which started running candidates for parliament on uh, as Kurds, which was enormously controversial. And everybody who ever joined the party and made it into parliament ended up in jail or under some kind of you know draconian rule or mm. killed or whatever. I mean, the, the the repression has been phenomenal, and it's happening again now with the. Uh, the current party, which is the HDP. I mean, the party has had to change its name about five or six times because mm. they keep getting made illegal. <laughs> anyway, so all this is going on at the same time. And the PKK changes its line partly as a result of the mobilization of women in the party. And women began to mobilize in an autonomous way also in the 90s. And this was part of the great global women's movement of the 90s that culminated in the Beijing Conference of 1995. And um, 
and people really did mobilize all over the world for this through the UN and brought people to Beijing and to other conferences. And they were there, and they saw the strength of this movement, and they went back and they started organizing Uh autonomously and saying, we want to have our own armies, we want to have our own militias, we want to have our own autonomous organizations at every level, and they do now. Every, every, um, Every little city council type body has a woman's city council running in parallel with it. Mm. And women were and, cer- certainly powerful at you know, the Beijing conference. So, Go ahead. so women are getting this enormous amount of political experience, much more than they do in most places. Mm. Interesting, interesting. And, you know, I, I, the more time goes on, the more I have a problem with nationalism per se, you know, which really came up in the late 19th century and got us into the horrible First World War, for which we're still paying a price. And, you know, before, my impression is that before the First World War, there was the Ottoman Empire, which really wasn't a state at all. There were just tribes. And and if I read this right, your book shows that both Daesh, also known as ISIS, and the Kurdish liberation movements kind of both see the nation state as, as old-fashioned. The Islamic, right. the Islamic State seeks to impose a caliphate, which you call a vast cultural union without borders over current nation states, whereas the Kurdish liberation movement, as you say, wants something more democratic, feminist, and ethnically inclusive, a new kind of left-wing, non-state democratic formation, a radical... Right, and I think this is another reason that the West and Western governments find it hard to deal with them. They don't exactly understand what they want or see how, how it fits into any of their paradigms. Yeah. And it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't fit in. I mean, what they see is that eventually they want a federation of Kurdish non-state entities in all the four countries where there are a lot of Kurds, and they, the, the states of those countries can go on doing whatever they do all, as long as they're mm. democratic and don't repress their own populations. Well, of course, all four states <laughs> in those areas repress bit. their population. <laughs> so that's a, quite a large order. But, it, you know, one of the things I'm arguing is that this is something the U.S. should be supporting. Yes, you would think. Uh, this, this is what conforms with what we say we stand for as well. Yeah. And nothing else there does. So why are we a- even allied with Turkey, for instance? Or Saudi Arabia and all these... Oh, know. God, yeah. I know, really. It's... I mean, shouldn't we at least be putting some of our money where our mouth is? Could it could happen? It could happen. <laughs> I, you know, it could. I mean, it hasn't happened yet. But no. on the other hand, you know, something new happens all the time, and so we can hope. I I remember back. I think it was in high school. Yes, a long time ago, being taught that this region, the the Middle East, was the oldest cradle of civilization. You write that right. a magnificent in quote a magnificent victory for humanity may be gained in the place where it has uh, most been deformed, the cradle of civilization, and the victory by the Kurds over Daesh, quote, may have shown the world new ways to dream about democracy, equality, and living together. That's some powerful stuff. Please say more about, uh, you know, how... Well, the first part of that is a quotation from Oshalem himself, who Ah, spends a lot of time in his work um, sort of psychologizing the Kurds and their internalized oppression. Uh, with you know feelings of inferiority and just being having been treated like shit all their lives and everything, and uh, how how this is what he means by you know the lowest rising up 
to to be an example. And you know, this has a lot to do with women too. I when I was reading that I, at first, I thought of um, remember the movie Salt of the Earth about the miners' strike in oh, the Southwest yeah. and and the women, the miners' wives, sort of taking over when the men couldn't do it anymore and leading the struggle onto victory. And uh, I remember the character of one of them, Esmeralda, saying, we're the lowest of the low. We're the people everybody step on. So when we rise up, everybody rises up. Huh. And uh, I think that's, that's the vision in terms of the women, is that they will be able to lead to a different kind of freedom and equality uh, freedom from patriarchy as well as from all the other kinds of oppressive relations, including capitalism, by the way, mm-hmm. that um, that bother bother people and and mess them up and be able to create a society that's healthy. And uh, certainly we could use some examples of that kind. Boy, I'll say we could. And, you know, another way of getting around uh, nation states is I mean, the transnational corporations, you know, are shaking up the power of traditional nation states. And so this is, you know, there's that threat to nation states, the the just global capitalism. And there's this other alternative. And and you call it a a social laboratory. And uh, you write that that, that the the Rojava revolution deserves the attention of anyone in the region looking for a way to move past wars, ethnic cleansing campaigns, theocracies, and dictatorships. That's their vision. I mean, we have to say, they're very young, very new, and very beleaguered. They really need support. They don't even have enough food. They can't get medical Mm. supplies because of these blockades. They're being attacked, you know, on all sides. Now, not only by Al Nusra and ISIS, but also by Turkey. I mean, they really need support. Yeah, they really do. Is, is there any way people in the world can support them, or is that just, frankly, you know, totally impossible? It's difficult because it's, they're they're closed off. But the main kind of support they need is political support. We need to pressure our governments to give them political support to bring them, you know, to 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 recognize the importance of what they're doing and stop treating them just like soldiers who you can throw away when the battle's over. But see that their whole political enterprise is important and learn more about it. I mean, that's why I wrote this book. I really wanted to get this story out because I think it's so important. It really is. Thank you. Very fascinating, uh, revelatory uh, discussion today. The book is A Road Unforeseen, Women, Fight the Islamic State, Meredith Tax. Thanks so much for being with us, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you.